I'd like to report that the uh, carnival went well on Wednesday night. We had um, 150 gift bags, and we gave all those away. And um, according to the people who partnered with us from Vista Springs, they gave only 233 ice cream, um, frozen ice things. And so uh, unless it was just Dave and going in line over and over and over, um, there was a, a lot of people came. And so I was pretty busy. We actually, i um, thankful for Sue Bloom helping me paint faces. We doubled our capacity, and we were both still full the whole time. So um, a lot of kids, a lot of neighborhood people, and people from around Grand Rapids coming. And so um, thank you for helping with that. Continue to pray. And then that's the kickoff for our fall um, ministries. And so this Wednesday night, things start up with young explorers and stuff like that. So it went well. Well, let's pray before we start with today's uh, message. Father, Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for your word. We want to be the kind of students of your word who rightly divide it, that we rightly understand it, that we understand what you're trying to tell us, that we can discern the main things from the not-so-main things and give us wisdom as we grow. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, in the book of 1 Corinthians, we've been working through, and as you recall, I hope you recall, and I hope you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, that it starts out with a, a fair amount of conversation about divisions in the church, things that are unnecessary, things that are wrong, uh, wrong perspectives, and Paul is trying to pull these believers into a perspective that their life is different now in Jesus. The most significant characteristic of their life is that they're Christ followers, deal definitions of who they are as a people. And so that's an important um, thing that we learned. And then we started to address some significant difficulties, like uh, sexual immorality, how to control yourselves, and then the whole issue with marriage and, and separation and divorce and all those things. And then he entered into a rather... Uh, a list of things, and one of the list of things was meat offered to idols, and we spent four chapters talking about how that whole thing that seems to be sort of uh, culturally bound, but not really, in the end, you're supposed to honor God first and not get caught up with pagan worship, especially in wrong places like these idolatrous temples, the false temples and the things that people were worshiping in. And so he's going through this list now about this, now about this, now about this. And having just finished the conversation about the um, meat offered to idols and participating in, in pagan worship practices in the church, and that's not supposed to be, we're not supposed to mix Christ with demonic activities, right? And so on that thing, then he stops, and kind of in the middle here, it appears that he's not really addressing a list anymore, a list item. He'll do that again in a couple of chapters, a couple of weeks from now. But right now, he's going to stop and say, I have something to praise you for and something not to praise you for. So there's information that's come to him about how they're worshiping. They have learned not to participate in these temples of the demons as false idols, but now there's some things in the way they do church, in the way they worship, one is commendable, and that's this thing about the women wearing head coverings, and the other one is not commendable, and that's the way they were doing communion. 
And so in a couple of Sundays, we'll talk about the communion, but today we're going to talk about head coverings. So let me read this for you in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 2. And you're welcome to read along in your own copy of the Bible if you'd like. And he says, I praise you. So like I said, he's going to say, I praise you for some things. He says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. So they've been doing something right. And he says, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies you need to understand this word prophesy is truth-telling. It doesn't mean predicting the future necessarily. That can be part of it, but uh, 80 to 90% of the time it just means speaking. Like right now, I, what I'm doing is I'm prophesying, I'm preaching. That's what this is. So every man who prays or preaches or declares truth, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man, right? God took a rib out of Adam's body and formed the woman, but neither was man created for the woman, right? But the woman was created for man because God came into the garden and said, it's not good for man to be alone, so he made a helpmate for her. So the woman is from man and for man, and it's written that a woman ought to have authority over her head because of the angels, and nevertheless, in the Lord, a woman is not independent of man, nor is a man independent of woman. So even though God set it up that woman would be made for the man and from the man, it's not like they're independent, and nor should guys get it all that they're all this and the women aren't because we're not dependent of them either, right? For nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent or separate or undefined from man, nor is a man independent of woman, for as, as woman came from man, so also, what? Man is born of woman. So we depend on them too. Uh, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for my mom. And so, but everything comes from God. So this is God's plan, God's design. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? So somehow this statement is resonating with the Corinthian believers, and they get it. It's hard for us to get it, because I'm not really sure why that's so obvious to me. But it was obvious to them for some reason, and we're going to talk about that more in a minute. Now, does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is to her glory. For long hair is given her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So if you want to fight about all this, we're just, we're, uh, this is the way we practice things. Okay? So, let me review a little bit and remind you 
Does this sound familiar? Does this message sound familiar? Good. Then you've been here in the last two years because I preached on this on October 1st, 2017, right? So that's only two years, just a hair under two years ago. And the reason I did was because I was doing a series on Genesis, and we had just talked about the creation and the creation order, and we talked about the implications of Genesis for the rest of our experience. And so we had one whole sermon on the implications for the family, the fact that the husband and wife are in one way. We had another whole message, which the implications for the church. That's this one. That was an actor. You remember that. Wasn't it a great day, man? It was one of the best messages ever. You all remember. If you want to hear it again, I can give you a, 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 a copy. And then there's implications for um, the husband or men and women in society and culture. And so we, we took the teaching of Genesis and saw its implications throughout the Bible. And that's what we did, and that's why we covered this. Now, the reason we're talking about it today is because we're working through the book of Corinthians. And as is our practice, I just can't stand skipping over a spot because that would show some sort of uh, arrogance on my part that I know what God should talk about more than he does, right? So I'm going to follow the Bible. That's what we try to do. And so sometimes we have a series, a, a, a cool series like Receive Grace, Extend Grace. Isn't that awesome? And that picks up again next week, so I can't wait for that. But uh, normally we work through the Bible. So let me just review for you what we learned last time. Uh, headship matters. It matters to God that uh, a husband is over her wife, his wife, and, it, and the signs matter. So how you communicate matters. If I have a swastika on my shirt, it sends meaning, right? That very same symbol 400 years ago might not have meant anything to anybody. But symbols have meaning, so signs matter. So in the Corinthian context, there was something about uh, having your head covered. Either it was something to do with the temple worship or the, the pagan prostitutes. I've heard that the, the prostitutes, part of the pagan worship, the temple prostitutes had uh, shaved heads, and so maybe it was some kind of identification with that. But somehow it mattered to the Corinthians and um, specific signs are culturally bound, right? Which sign is which? Are there any signs today? I don't, I don't know. Um, I'm sure we have them. When I was a teenager, I was telling my boys yesterday some memories from the 60s. I wasn't a teenager in the 60s, but I was a little boy. And they couldn't believe things like before color TV and before seat belts and before air conditioning. Anyway, so... Um, but things change over time. And, what, you know, back in those days, the, the hippie movement, long hair was a rebellious thing, right? Men wearing long hair, that was a really big deal back then. Now I'm not so sure we can even get anybody to notice. And so life changes. But so specific signs are culturally bound. The other thing we learned is that gender matters to God, that uh, there are two genders, they are different, and God makes the call, Right? So God decided who you are when you were born, and that's the way he's made you, and that's the way you need to submit to his will. And anything outside of that is rebellious. And somehow, some way, in the church, we need to hold to the truth that it's clear in our company who are men and who are women, and it's clear that we honor God's plan for our lives and don't dishonor through the signs that we would choose to use. So I'd, I'm not sure how that all plays out, but um, we should not be um, 
confusing in the way we present ourselves, either masculinity or femininity. People ought not wonder what we are. It ought to be clear and we ought to honor God. So that's a summary of that message back then. Okay? The point is that I want to use today is to take this occasion is to borrow a phrase from, I hear from Alistair Begg quite often. I listen to his podcast. And um, I'm sure he's probably borrowed it from someone else. But he often says, the plain things of the Bible are the main things of the Bible. The way that you can tell what God means is by understanding the things that are plain and the things that are not so plain. And the plain, clear, obvious things, that, oh, those are the main things that God's trying to communicate to us. I think it was uh, Samuel Clemens, is that uh, Mark Twain, same guy? He once said that it's not the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand that bother me. He was not a believer that I know of, but he was afraid of the clear teachings of the Bible. And so what is the main message of the Bible? I'm sure there are people even here who could do a better job of explaining what the main message of the Bible is, but the Bible is really God's story. Right? It's about God. He's the creator. He's the source of all life. He's a being other than us. He's holy, and he's uncreated and self-existent, and he caused the universe and all that is in it to exist through the power of his word, and he created in that universe persons, human beings who are persons. We are in his image, and in his image we are able to somehow relate to him and communicate with him and understand him in some analogous way. We understand beauty. We understand morality, right and wrong. We know what guilt is. Um, we, we understand uh, language and can put symbols into meaning and make sense out of it. And God gave us the charge to rule over the earth and to be fruitful and to multiply and and to take his ways and make the world full of those things. And it was a beautiful thing. But God also gave a restriction to Adam and Eve. He says, you cannot eat from a certain tree, and we disobeyed. It wasn't just an accidental disobedience. It was a deliberate choice to rebel against God and say, you know, I'm going to decide for myself what's right. It was autonomy. I'm going to be my own law. I, Eve looked at the fruit. It was pretty good looking. She sure was for food. And hey, it's going to make me wise. I'm going to be like God. And Adam understood everything that was going on, and he just took it. And that decision on our part brought humanity and the whole earth that we represent, that we rule over into the curse, the curses caused by sin. We rebelled against God and we deserve death. And on the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. And, and while they didn't physically die all the way that day, death began and decay started to occur. I wonder if there was a wrinkle already the next day. But they started to deteriorate and they died. And their descendants died and, and spiritually separated from God. And death wreaks havoc through the whole earth. But God is... Uh, gracious and amazing, and he wants to redeem and buy us back and save us from our sin. And so the whole Bible is a story about how God works 
to form a people who will be the family through which he brings his own son, the Lord Jesus, who's, who's God's son and yet born of a woman. And so he's a human being fully, but he's also still fully God. And Jesus says the God-man lives on this earth and he lives in a way that's morally perfect. He faces more temptation and worse temptations than Adam and Eve ever did. And yet he never, ever decides to be autonomous. He always obeys the Father. And he always does the right thing. And so Jesus is God's great message. So God created. Human beings are in God's image. And we fell into sin. And God sends Jesus to redeem us from death. And Jesus does exactly that. And through the foreknowledge and plan of God and through the wicked deeds of Pilate and Caiaphas and all of the human beings of the Roman Empire, they took Jesus, his innocent person and the body, and they put him on the tree on the cross and they They abused him and shamed him, and he became sin for us. And while on the cross, God even turned his back, and and he could not, he separated himself from his own son. And Jesus, knowing it was going to happen, the night before he dreaded it so much, he was in, in deep stress, even so much that he sweat blood. He was so dreading this moment, and he knew it was going to come, and he begged God, please let this cup pass from me but not my will, yours be done. And he knew there was no other way for him to purchase salvation for us. And so he accepted the cup and God turned his back on Jesus on the cross and Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he quotes Psalm 22 and the whole context of Psalm 22 about the the abuses of Satan against Jesus' body and spirit at that time. Jesus endured our hell on the cross. And it was so shameful that God covered the shame by making the whole earth dark during that time. Three hours of darkness. And even the pagans who were there watching beat their chests and say, surely this was the Son of God. They knew something was going on, cosmic. And at the end of that time, Jesus raised his voice and said, it's finished. And he gave up his spirit. Nobody killed Jesus. He gave it up and he died. And the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, granting access to all in Christ to the presence of God. The irreconcilable offense of sin, the separation from God is now atoned for, paid off. And so that those who would come to Jesus and believe in him can stand with and in God's presence without fault and free from accusation. Can you believe it? I am perfectly holy in Christ, in God's presence. No matter my stumbles and falls now, in Christ, I'm just as loved now as I will ever be. Even a billion years from now, after I've understood so many more things, I'm already that loved. Isn't that something? So my identity, your identity in Christ, that's what binds us together. And so the great message of the Bible is how God moves to bring Jesus. And then now through Jesus' people, through us, he's moving to bring the news of Jesus to other people. You see, this, this great work of Jesus on the cross is so great, and yet it is not to be taken for granted. It's not universal. Not everybody gets its benefit. One thief on the cross understood somehow what was going on, And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. The other thief on the cross continued to curse God and hate 
and he's lost. And there's nothing that'll ever change that. And just like that in the world today, there are people who, who have heard God's call and accepted the truth about Jesus and accept Jesus by faith and they're saved and they're secure. But there are so many who still, just as we're born to do, hate God and will not bend the knee and will not acknowledge who Jesus is and will not accept God's salvation. So God is working to form a people. And our role here is to demonstrate his love to the world so that people will want to find out what we believe and come and understand who Jesus is and understand and come to faith and be saved to God's glory. Amen? So that's the grand story of the Bible. And in the end, Jesus is going to come back and rule all things and a new heaven and new earth, and it'll never, ever be possible to sin again. So that's the main message of the Bible. And that's the most exciting thing. And probably, I think if you really want to benefit from today's message, you would leave now, right? Because that's the best it's going to get is about the gospel. And so I'll give you a few minutes to exit. And I'll just continue on the rest because of the tape in case people at home want to hear something more. Um, I'll quote a friend of a a pastor I heard. He said, I'll pray bad things happen to you. Just joking. Okay, so if you're still here, I want to talk about some things then about this text that that we have a challenge here. I, I was talking to Tammy the other day. I don't understand why it is that God would, would do such a great thing as to save us and to give us knowledge about Jesus and still leave us in such a state of desperate ignorance. Don't you feel so uninformed still? There's so many things I still have to learn, and I wonder why God does that? Why does he want us to stumble? Or why does he allow it? It seems like, hey, there's a believer. I'm going to infuse him with 100% right doctrine, right understanding. Wouldn't it be awesome if we had it all figured out? Or if we could all agree on everything right away? And yet we struggle with our, our sin and our, our worldly thinking patterns and our life experiences. And they come in and we, we read the text that's the truth. We all believe it's one straight truth. And yet we see it in different ways and we misunderstand things. And it, it causes trouble. And I'm trying to figure out why would God do that? I wouldn't be that way. I'm super, like I'm a super communication Nazi. I don't mean Nazi. What's a, what's a more better word? Obsessed, okay? I'm obsessed with I'm called a game Nazi, which is not a very nice thing either. But it's somebody who's really driven, right? Really, really, I'm obsessed with communicating. I can't hardly tell a joke without having to make sure you get it. And if you don't get it, i got to explain it to you. And I can barely get past. I, and so if I was going to make believers, I would, like, infuse them with understanding. And yet we don't have that. And then I started, well, maybe, maybe part of what gives God glory is those aha moments, right? When, oh, now I get it. Maybe that's, maybe that's in some ways a, a brief description of what my experience is going to be for the next billion years. Oh, now I get it. I'll, I'll learn something new. And maybe I'll finally get a chance to, to get down the line and meet Caleb and and talk to him about, why did you want to go to that mountain? What's the whole deal with that? And, oh, now I get it. And so the, maybe that's, maybe the, God, God loves 
to reveal himself. And maybe that's part of the learning process. Well, in the learning process, we have often have the problem of getting distracted. We, because of our sin nature, I think, because we're fallen people, we don't always think right, we get distracted by things that aren't the main things of the Bible. And this is a real tension because we're, every part of the Bible is important. Every single word, amen? Everything matters. And yet some things are just too obscure for us to figure out here, and we can get distracted by those even to the point that we would miss the main things. And so it's a, it's a temptation that's common to man. It's not uncommon to Jesus' day. Um, you remember how Jesus, the, the disciples who opposed, or excuse me, the Pharisees who would oppose Jesus say, how can this be the Messiah? We don't even know where he comes from. And someone else says, well, we know that, he, that the Messiah has to come from Bethlehem, but this man we don't. And they would argue about all these details of things that they speculated and couldn't figure out, and they were able to basically get themselves to completely rejecting who Jesus was because they couldn't get themselves out of the details. There were so many little picky things that, but see, down deep inside, they didn't want to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so they whole categorically, Judaism rejected Jesus. And so it's the same danger we have today. So let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about. First of all, what's the, with the angels? All right, did you catch that phrase that I read today? It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her head because of the angels. Now, that's a little line in there. What's going on with the angels? Why does a woman have to show the sign of authority, whatever the sign it is? Why does, why does that matter to the angels? Well, if you take that phrase and you couple it with this sort of obscure text in Genesis 6, when human beings, this is before Noah's flood, right? When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that these daughters were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with human beings forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120. And then he says, then the Nephilim were in the earth in those days, and also afterward. Nephilim is the Hebrew word for giant. So it's giants. Were in the earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God, again here, the sons of God went to the daughters of human beings and had children by them, they were the heroes of old men of renown. So, what's with the angels? So people have actually taken this, uh, these two phrases and come to the conclusion that angels are sexually attracted to women, human women. And they would go back to this thing and say that the sons of God is a reference to angels. And they saw these daughters of human beings being born and they said, yowza, yowza. And they go down and they have offspring with them, and that's where the Nephilim came from. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Like Roman mythology, right? The whole Zeus comes down and has a Hercules, I think, isn't he the half-god, half-man, or Odysseus, or all those nonsense stories. Um, so somebody, so then that's an obscure thing that people have gotten messed up on. Now, um, I was listening to a, a, a DVD called the Prophecy Summit, 
And one of the topics in the DVD uh, was not, I was watching, it was a movie, it was a speaker, and the speaker was supposedly an expert on prophecy, and he was talking, his topic of this particular message was UFOs. And he was talking about UFOs, and in his presentation, he said that UFOs are a sign of Satan. Satan has the power to do signs and wonders in the heavens. And what the UFOs is, the angel, fallen angels, satanic angels, are trading technology for women. And that's how Nazi Germany had so much advanced technology and their aircraft, and why they basically, the satanic worshipers, were giving women to demonic angels, and in return, the angels were teaching them about technology. And that UFOs are just advanced technology today of um, that uh, somebody somewhere is trading women for them. I'm not sure where those are. Now, you need to understand that is not true. It's a bunch of malarkey. Let me uh, at least quote this part. Matthew, in chapter 22, Matthew 29, some of Jesus' enemies um, came to Jesus, and again, they took an obscure thing and tried to argue with Jesus, and they said, now, you say there's a resurrection. These are the Sadducees who do not believe in a resurrection. And they said, um, you need to, there was this man who was married, and then his wife died, and so, or no, there was a woman who was married, and her husband died, and so then somebody else married her again, and, and then that husband died. She married seven men. They all died off. She must have been poisoned, <laughs> right? And so the question is, now, Jesus, we got you on the rocks because we got you in a hard place. When they get resurrected, whose wife will she be? She had seven husbands. And so they were trying to take some obscure thought to prove there was no resurrection. And Jesus responds with, you are in error. And I love the King James. You are greatly in error for two reasons. Because you don't know the scriptures, right? You're twisting the Bible, and you don't know the power of God. And so you're in great error. And look what Jesus explains. At the resurrection, people will be neither married nor be given in marriage. So you need to understand that in heaven, we're not married anymore. We're going to be like what, class? The angels. So does Jesus think that angels have it for human women? <laughs> no, not at all. They're neuter. They're uh, unable to procreate. They manifest themselves in masculine form, but there's, they're, not, uh, they're not biological like that, okay? So it's ridiculous. And he says, but about the resurrection of the dead, you have, not, have you not read the scriptures? God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, and his enemies were flummoxed and left, right? And so that whole thing about the angels is not true. All right, so how do we go back and explain the, uh, these obscure texts that I read? All right, so first of all, uh, this one. What is the reason that women have to have a sign over their head because of the angels? What is another explanation? Well, I think the cleanest one from the Bible is angels understand chain of authority. It's offensive to them in worship when people are not in authority, not under the right response. And so we should do it to honor the angels, to, be, uh, to honor their submission to authority the same way. So it has nothing to do with sexual attraction. And this whole thing about the human beings and the daughters of men 
Um, my best understanding is that the sons of God are the descendants of Seth, which were followers of God, and the daughters of men are the descendants of the other brothers and sisters of Adam, of Cain and Abel. Remember, Cain killed Abel, and Cain had descendants, and then others. God left God's faithfulness, and they married women into the families of other ones, and so had, they were all human beings. And I don't really like the way the NIV translates or this, this latest version, because in the Hebrew, sons of God is sons of God, but the daughters of men is just human beings, daughters of, of men. Not, not, this, this implies that there's some distinction between human beings and sons of God. They're all human beings. And so there's just, it's, just, it's just a degradation of the godly line, the descendants of Seth. And um, guess what Nephilim are? Big guys, right? Are there big guys in the world today? Some. Maybe not as big as Goliath, but there's big guys around. And uh, another, uh, there's small people. Uh, pygmies, we used to call them, right? There's small people. Really, they're just, it just so happens all the gene pools get mixed up. And also this word Nephilim, if this really were just the descendants of angels and people, there's another reference in Chronicles that says there was Nephilim in the land when they were going to, remember they sent the 12 spies into the land of Israel to see whether or not they wanted to um, take the land. And they said, there's Nephilim in the land. Well, if they, that was after the flood. Who was on the ark? Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives, eight people. So Nephilim are just big people, just tall people. So it's, it doesn't have to get all creepy. So the idea that you would assert that UFOs is because angels have it for women and they're selling technology. There's so many layers of that that are wrong. And I, I don't mean to make a big deal out of it other than to, I want to communicate to us, the church, we're going to stay by the main things, right? If we would ever promote or, or push some kind of nonsense like that, why, why would people want to know? Are you curious about what UFOs are? It appeals to our, our human nature and our, our, it's not the main thing of the Bible at all. Get it? One more. <clears throat> Descendants of Canaan. You heard of that one before? Genesis 9, after the flood, Noah woke up from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him. Remember Ham, Shem, and Japheth are the sons. Noah got drunk. Ham made sport of his, naked, his father's naked body. And, uh, and made a joke about it somehow. And when Noah woke up, he cursed his son Ham. And he cursed him by cursing Ham's son, Canaan. And he said, cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. And so this phrase has been used. I've heard it, I heard it at McDonald's once, some guy talking to somebody else. This phrase has been used to justify chattel slavery of dark-skinned people that they're the descendants of Cain, Canaan, and that somehow that justifies because Noah cursed his grandson, Canaan, that he's going to be the slave of all of his brothers, that that somehow is the cause and source and therefore the justification for the uh, racial enslavement of dark-skinned peoples. All right? Have you heard that before? Well, just a few verses down, it says, Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and of the Hittites and Jebusites and Amorites. Those, anybody ever heard those before? Girgashites, Hivites. Who are those people? 
Anybody know? They're the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, the land that the people of Israel came in and fought against, the peoples who God told them to wipe them out. And they are Arabic-skinned people, not African-skinned people. And they were largely all wiped out. And look at this here. Later, the Canaanite clan scattered, and the borders of Canaan reached from Sidon towards Gerar as far as Gaza, and then towards Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Sebim. So the descendants of Canaan aren't dark-skinned peoples. They're actually a family line of really, really wicked people. And God gave permission or commanded Joshua to attack and destroy these peoples but remember, he tells Abraham, the iniquity of the Canaanites has not yet been full. God waited for their evil to be so evil that it deserved annihilation before he sent them in. And Sodom and Gomorrah was part of that annihilated people group. So the point is, is that there's no justification in the Bible for um, chattel slavery based on skin color, for sure. But that's another example where somebody takes a side thing and they come with their priest dispositions and, and their bias and they want to justify the sin within their own heart and they use a piece of the Bible for their power. Have you ever seen anybody do that? Hey, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. Right? The Lord helps those who help themselves, which isn't even in the Bible. right? And people quote these things and Corinth was full of those kinds of people. Hey, you know, body for food and food for the body doesn't matter what I do. Those are distortions of the truth. All right, you with me? So let's not get caught up on bad things. All right, if you have any other ones, text me at six. Oh, time's up. Sorry, we don't have time. But I was open to that possibility. Okay, I could go on and on. Um, I sort of wanted. I had prepared to discuss one other source of these problems. A lot of times, in my experience, there has been a um, a healthy and yet both dangerous um, interest in the Israeli Jewish roots of Jesus' faith. It's important for us to understand Judaism and its culture and the world that Jesus lived in. It's important for us to understand that. But there has been a resurgence in recent years um, of this fascination with the Jewish roots of our faith. And in the process there is a movement to elevate the teachings of rabbis, of Judaism rabbis, rabbinical teachers, as having some inside track and authority on what the Bible means. And yet these are the descendants, these are the teachings and the writings of the very same people who rejected Jesus and crucified him. And so to trust a Jewish rabbi, just because he's got that title, is pretty dangerous, I think. And there's, um, in the Bible, Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach doctrines, false doctrines, any longer. And listen to this, nor to devote themselves to myths, and endless genealogies. One of the characteristics of these, these um, rabbinical writings is a lot of mythology and a lot of uh, genealogy stuff. And so 
I just want you to have your guard up. Consider the source. Where do we know best about what it was like when Jesus was on earth? Where do we know? Do we go to the rabbis or do we go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? You should go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The rabbinical stuff wasn't even, they didn't even form what is known as Judaism until the two or second or third century. And so there wasn't, when, when the New Testament talks about Jesus as a rabbi, they're not using the same word the same way at all. That rabbinic Judaism did not even occur in time of Jesus. And so I guess I would just caution you, watch out, consider the source, right? So that's another one of my hobby horses. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your truth. Help us to be a people who focus on the main things. May it not matter what, whether or not the women wear hats. May it matter in our hearts that we submit to your plan for our lives. May we do all things decently in order to honor Jesus. And may our most significant identity be found in Christ, not in any um, other cultural or, or educational preferences. Father, the amazing thing is that I, I was, I'm a sinner saved by grace. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, stand and, and sing with us our closing song. Well said. You just sang the truth. Amen. On Christ. When everything else falls away, he's the stand. He's the one, he's the rock we got to stand on, right? It's the truth. When I stand before God, why, why would I be allowed into heaven? Jesus paid it all. And I trusted him. And that's the greatest story, right? So you, uh, you, you did well in class today. I told you to leave when you had a chance. So it's, uh, please stay and join us for our fellowship time. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Wyoming Park Bible Fellowship. We hope and pray that it strengthened your faith and pointed you to Jesus. We want you to know, too, that we grow in our faith not just through listening to sermons, but by becoming part of a local church. If you're not part of a local church, we pray that you'll visit one soon. And if you're in the Grand Rapids or Wyoming area, we want to invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 930 for worship. May God bless you.